We are in the second part of a three-week series uh, on this book, and uh, the book of Habakkuk is incredibly fascinating. Uh, it follows Nahum, as we saw last week, and uh, it is uh, a, a challenging book. Uh, a lot of times people skip right to the third chapter because of the, the song that Habakkuk sings, and we're going to get there next week. But in order to appreciate the song and his response, which is incredibly amazing, you've got to live long enough in chapters 1 and 2. It's kind of like Romans 8. You can't really appreciate what Paul says in Romans 8 until you've lived for a while in Romans 7. The wrestling, the struggle, the work to trust is what forges the song of confidence in the Lord. And so that's where we're at today. I titled the sermon, How to Live in the Midst of Judgment. And uh, just by way of reminder, last week we started, and we, we started with this amazing exchange of Habakkuk going to the Lord. Rather than the Lord coming to him like the other minor prophets, he goes to the Lord on behalf of what he sees in Judah, compromise, wickedness, violence, um, lack of faith, a disregard for the law of God. And he goes and he says, Lord, how long will you not move and bring discipline and, and rebuke and, and, and vengeance upon these evildoers in the land? The Lord's response was surprising, as we saw last week. I guarantee that Habakkuk did not see that coming. God says, it's coming. I am responding, and the way I'm responding is by bringing the Chaldeans. I am bringing the Babylonians up, and I will move through the land, and they will decimate the land, these evil, violent, sinful Chaldeans are going to be wielded by my hand as a rod of discipline on Judah. Well, that was a lot to process. And I think Habakkuk is kind of reeling as he figures out, you know, what do I say now? now the problem was bad, but the solution feels way worse. And yet God is good, and God is just, and God is sovereign. And so what will he say in response? That's where we pick up the text today. We're in verse 12 of chapter 1. I titled this, The Prophet's Praise. The Prophet's Praise. Look at what he does. He says, Are you not from everlasting? O Lord, that's Yahweh. O Lord, my God, my Holy One. Whoa, what a, what a worship. What a a theology functioning here in this response. And then he says this, we shall not die. O Lord, Yahweh, you have ordained them, that is the Babylonians, as a judgment. And you, O rock, have established them for reproof. So these words reveal a lot about the heart of this man, Habakkuk. He is a man who knows the Lord, right? He is a man who has good theology, which in times of challenge, I was encouraging folks to this just last week, embrace delight in the doctrines, the, the theology of your Bible, because it is those doctrines that serve as roots when the storm winds blow. They will hold you and, and strengthen you deeply as you are in the midst of the storm or in the furnace. And so here is Habakkuk, and he's revealing that he has a view of God that is high and exalted. Look at his words here. You're my rock. Oh, rock. Oh, I love that. Oftentimes when people are in the hospital and struggling and hurting, 
I move them to fortress psalms, as I call them. Focus on the God who is. He is the rock, the ground that doesn't shake beneath your feet. Look to him. Run into him as a fortress, a high tower. He is a shelter. And then he says this, my holy one, which is a a remembrance of the holiness of God. All his ways are just. He is faithful and true. He does not act in any way that is not right and upright. He is the everlasting God, which means all things come from him. He is the creator. He is the sovereign. There is no nation, no king, no ruler that would ever in any way threaten the sovereign who is the everlasting God. So it's good to focus on who God is when you're struggling. Who is he? What's he like? How does he move? And then how has he moved in the past? What has he done in the past? We're going to see that next week. A rehearsing of God's engagement in past events that builds and strengthens our faith for the present. That's next week. He draws comfort from the reminder that God is sovereign. He is the ruler. He is in control. You have ordained, he says. You have ordained these evil and wicked Babylonians to come and and serve as the rod of discipline in your hand. It's hard for us to fathom this. We, we, we don't have the experience that Judah is, is experiencing in this moment. I, I can't quite imagine. Maybe the closest thing we, we could come up with, like I said in Nahum, would be if, if God said in pronouncement to us, I am bringing ISIS, and ISIS is going to move across your land violently, and they will, they will uh, kidnap, and they will kill, and they will destroy and burn, and they will be my tool of judgment in my righteous hand. That'd be tough to swallow, wouldn't it? That's about the closest connection I could imagine. These people are evil and wicked and violent. They kill just to kill. They heap up. They annihilate peoples. How can he say this with confidence? We shall not die. We shall not die. What's amazing is how many interpreters and translators try to wiggle out of these words. They are clear, they are there. The text justifies this very strong statement of confidence in the middle of this passage. So we trust the Bible. We trust the Word. These are the words that Habakkuk responded with. They are in our Bibles. They are ordained. And so his confidence is rooted in who God is as the sovereign. We shall not die. What I would say I think is in view here is we will not be annihilated. This will not be the end of your people, O God. You have, you have committed that we are your covenant people. And so even when Hitler ravaged the Jews, there is a confidence he will not succeed in this, right? Because he, God has chosen the Jews to be his covenant people. There will be a remnant preserved. There is a future promise to be fulfilled. He will come. In some way or another, he will come. We shall not be annihilated. We shall not die. Now, that is his praise. That is his worship. And it's good for us to be reminded of that. It's a great response for us to go. Even when we're wrestling, it's good to go to the Lord in that way and remind ourselves of who he is. What kind of God is he? But it's also 
right for us to share with God the weight upon our heart, our concern, our worry, our struggle. I was just encouraging someone just yesterday with the reality, like in Buddhism, you're supposed to just pretend like everything's fine. There is no pain, right? There is no suffering. There is no hurt, no ache. That's crazy. Your Bible does not call you to deny reality. I love that God doesn't just say, just keep a stiff upper lip and pretend like everything's great, right? No, there are days where we are falling apart, friends, where we are reeling under the weight of circumstance and struggling. God says, bring that to me. Come to me with that. Be there with me. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me there. Okay, so the prophet's problem. Verse 13. You who are of purer eyes, that's to say he is holy, than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Lord, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Now that's an interesting statement. It's an echo of his first question and cry, right? Lord, how come you're silent when these things take place? And, and now he's saying, listen, yes, we are your people, and, and, and yes, we are corrupt, and there's people in our midst that are evildoers, but, but we are your people, and we are looking to you. At least some of us are. And there are righteous people in that sense who are looking to you, who are being swallowed up by the wicked, It's important to note here, uh, <clears throat> sometimes I hear people say this, well, all sin is the same. That's not true. Your Bible never says that anywhere. All sin is not the same. There are some sins far more offensive and grievous and serious. All sin, even just one, will land you in the fires of hell because all sin is intensely opposed to God and is rightly and justly condemned. But God sentences people to hell for the sins they have committed. That is his justice. It's right. It's not like, I'm not going to punish you for everybody equally. I'm going to punish you for what you've done, good or bad. And in hell, it's going to be bad, right? So when someone commits um, uh, one sin over here, it is punished in this way by God. When someone commits a sin over here, it's punished in this way, it is not just equal, blanket, bam, gavel, pound, you're dead. It would be like getting 20 years in prison for shoplifting. God is just. His retribution is right and precise, and it fits the offense. That's, I think, what the contrast is here. Who is righteous on this earth? Well, no one is righteous in that sense. But this people who rails against God and, and, and does these abominable things to other people, they are, in that sense, not as righteous as God's people who look to Him and seek to obey and honor Him, even when they are judged by God for the disobedience of the nation. He goes on with a nod here to Genesis, which if, if ever there is a doubt that God is the Creator, and they say, well, it's just the early chapters of your Bible you have to question, that's a lie. Because throughout your Bible, God is referred to as creator. He is given um, that, that credit, as it were. Look at what Habakkuk says. You make mankind like the fish of the sea. He is the creator. He's the one who made man, Adam and Eve, and then multiplied them across the face of the earth. Like crawling things who have no ruler. 
He sees this, this massive sea of humanity, but then he sees just this increasing um, anarchy, this, this struggle, like who is going to rule? And what happens is oftentimes the ruthless and the powerful rise in strength and they crush the weak. He brings all of them up. Now he's referencing Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon. He brings all of them up, all these fish. It's like a fisherman who goes up. He brings them up with a hook. He drags them out with a net. He gathers them with a dragnet and rejoices and is glad. He's like a fisherman who just catches fish to throw them on the beach and watch them die. He's not just eating because he's hungry. He is hauling loads of fish up, the nations as it were, and just treading upon them in the sand. It's not right. It's not just. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net, as we saw last week. They, they bow to their own military strength in worship. He makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Here's the question. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? You see what Habakkuk is struggling with. How long, O Lord? This is just another way of saying it. How long, O Lord? Yes, there's evil in our midst, but how can it be better that Babylon come and and discipline us? Look at this guy. How long, O Lord, over here now? Are you going to allow him to do this forever? It's a cry for help. It's a cry to God for help from God. In a sense, he's saying, what about Babylon? What about the horrible evil they commit? How can they continue to prosper as they do? Oh, and in this is the echo of many psalms and many times the echo of our own hearts. Why do the wicked prosper and the righteous, as it were, suffer? Will you punish and repay them is the question. That's what Habakkuk is longing to know from the Lord and he wants to hear from the Lord in regards to the Babylonians now. He says this at the end of his, of his question, and I, I, I used the NASB here because I was just dissatisfied with the ESV. So note the difference as you're, as you're reading. Listen to how much clearer, uh, maybe a more literal translation is uh, of this verse. I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart, and I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me. And then here's the part that I especially think is, is, is better handled. And how I may reply when I am reproved. So it is not just that Habakkuk is saying, I need to hear from you, Lord. He's also preparing his own heart. I think probably because the last time he heard, he wasn't prepared. He, like, the Lord surprised him with the Babylonians coming. So he's saying, I want to prepare my own heart so that I will rightly respond when I am reproved, when you speak and address my question. So I call this verse to mind, Psalm 37, 7. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. That was our call to worship last week. This is such an important reminder for us when we struggle, when we see injustice, when we see policies that are destroying our nation and just really insane decisions in leadership. When we deal with a governor who won't release power, how do we respond? What do we do? 
Fret not yourself, friends. Fret not yourself. Refrain from, ang- from anger. Forsake anger. It leads only to sin, right? Don't, don't feel like you have to take on the burden of all of those things. God has them. What do we do? We go to him. And we wait patiently. We wait patiently before him. This is a, a commitment to go. He said, I'm going to go to my tower and I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait like a watchman, as it were. I, I know that you have answers and I'm coming to you and I'm going to wait for you, Lord. I'm looking to you. I'm, I'm trusting in you. I'm waiting patiently for you. Psalm 37, 7. It's a great point of, of uh, cross-reference there. So now God comes in response. This is God's second response to the prophet here. The righteous shall live by faith. This is where we get the theme of the whole book in the words that the Lord gives to Habakkuk. The Lord answered me. So here he is. He's on his, on his tower, as it were, waiting for the Lord each day, waiting for an answer. And then all of a sudden, again, the surprise of this, the awe that the Lord would respond to this prophet with clarity, with revelation. Listen to what the Lord says. He says, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it. I believe that's a reference to messengers carrying this proclamation out. It's coming, okay? For uh, still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, Habakkuk, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. So, I mean, you think uh, of the timeline last week. There was a handful of years that passed between God's proclamation and the fulfillment of what God had promised when indeed the Babylonians came and they sacked Jerusalem and threw down the temple. And it was a a, a total disaster that befell. Just as the Lord had promised that it would come, it did. This reminds me of this, the the kindness of God's warning. Do you feel this? Sometimes people say, well, hellfire and brimstone preaching, that's just angry and mean. Well, it is if there's no hope. If there's no hope, it is not angry and mean if it's given to people who are being warned of their sin. Don't continue in sin or there will be hell to pay. That is a loving and kind warning. Wake up, O sleeper. Turn from your sins. Trust Jesus as Lord, and you will be saved. You see the difference there? It's kindness of God to warn us of imminent doom. The kindness of God is functioning here even in His proclamation of of, of judgment upon the land. There is a call here. Ready yourselves. Look to me. In a sense, Habakkuk points the way. How should we respond? It also reminds us of the certainty of God's Word. And friends, there are many prophecies that have been written and given by the Lord that have yet to be fulfilled. Okay, So there, there's a pointer here for us. As Habakkuk was reminded, listen, wait for it. Wait for it. It's going to come. It may seem like it's taken a while to get there, but don't give up hope. Don't forget what I've said. I'm coming. It will take place. Think of all that we await. We studied through Revelation here this last year, or was that two years ago? Seems like recently, one year ago. 
Think of all the promises, the prophecies yet to be fulfilled. Wait for them, friends. It's coming. He said this in verse 4, Behold his soul, this is Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Wow. What a contrast. In this verse, we are given two ways to live. God gives Habakkuk a vision for how he is to walk out the years that that judgment will bring in righteousness, in obedience. How is he to do that? By faith. Each day, Lord, we look to you. We look to you. The contrast is, rather than in arrogance, rather than walking with a puffed-up heart, in pride, oh, we're, we're not in, in need of the Lord, we, we don't need to concern ourselves with Him, we're fine. We're going to be fine. Walking in pride versus walking in dependence. Dependence. So many different ways to, to look at this word faith. Faith. One of those words to get there is, is the word dependence. What am I looking to outside of myself? Who am I looking to? What do I need most today? Lord, I need you. Oh, sin at its very heart is pride. In pride, we say, I don't need you. I will be sovereign. I know better. I don't need your word. I don't need your son. I have what I need. I will live as I please. Pride. Pride. Hmm. Nebuchadnezzar was a man who displayed tremendous pride. In fact, I don't have time this morning to go there, but this week, go read Daniel 4. Daniel 4. What an amazing display of God taking a man of great pride and humbling him. It's an amazing passage. It actually connects here really well. So humble faith in the Lord is the path of the righteous. That is what it looks like. You are not walking in righteousness if you are walking in pride. It's just, it's just it's that, that doesn't go together. You can walk in humility and faith and God is pleased in that place. Righteous people will live humbly by faith in Him. So for the Christian to have any description of, of arrogance or pride, it is, it, it's an oxymoron. Arrogant Christians. That, that, that should not be named in this place. Humble Christians. It's one of the reasons I want to talk with the guys and work together through the topic of humility as men to lead the way in humility. Such an important part of the Christian life. I want to take you to 2 Chronicles 20, verse 12, and I'll just set the story up real quick. Um, King Jehoshaphat, which, by the way, parents, if you're naming your child totally like that, do you know any name, anyone named Jehoshaphat? Okay? It's waiting. Just let's do it. I think it would be awesome. Okay, Je- King Jehoshaphat, who was a God-honoring king, is facing the Moabites and the Ammonites, and they're coming in great horde to attack Jerusalem and, and attack Judah. And among other things, listen to the prayer of King Jehoshaphat here. 
he declares a, a, a fast and, and repentance and dust and ashes, and, and uh, he prays this prayer, and this is the tail end of his prayer. He says, oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming up against us. We do not know what to do. Listen to the faith here. But our eyes are on you. Oh, man, does that give you chills? That, my friends, is exactly what God calls Habakkuk to here. We don't know what to do. We don't, we don't know how to deal with these Babylonians that are coming, that coming in your hand as a rod of discipline, but, but our eyes are on you. We're looking to you. The righteous shall live by faith. So how do you live in the midst of judgment? I believe that our nation is under the judgment of God right now. I believe that what we are witnessing is increasing waves of His wrath. How are we to deal with this? Process it. Not be burdened and crushed and have our joy stolen because of it. How do we live? By faith. By faith. Maybe this could be the cry of our heart. Oh Lord, come what may. When we meet with what you ordain, right? Because we will not meet with anything that God has not ordained. He is sovereign. Whatever comes our way, He is sovereign over. He could have stopped it. He could have prevented it. But He has allowed it. So, even if we lose everything, we will rejoice in your sovereign righteousness. We will look to you in humble faith for deliverance. Oh Lord, you are our hope alone. Our eyes are on you. Our eyes are on you. What a prayer to pray. Lord, fix my eyes on you. When I'm struggling, when I'm in the depths of despair, when I'm in the furnace, oh Lord, when the, when the, the, the water is above my head and I am completely at a loss, what do I do? I look to you. I run to you. I cry out to you. Hmm. Now God's message to Babylon, woe is the message to Babylon. Woe is the message to Babylon. <laughs> Actually, it's woe times five. Okay? Now, this is helpful. I love this. God will give sometimes a glimpse here. He, he doesn't have to do this. But it's His kindness, even here, to give Habakkuk a little glimpse that he sees these atrocities. He sees what Babylon is doing, and he knows. And he pronounces his judgment upon them. Verse 5, moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. And I got stuck on that verse for a while, okay? I'm like, who are we talking about? We're talking about wine? Wine is a traitor, an arrogant man? What does that mean? And here's the deal. The, the ESV struggled, I think, here. Here, again, to the New American Standard, more literal. Sometimes it's helpful to get the flow of this. This is what the New American Standard Bible says. Furthermore, Wine betrays the haughty man so that he does not stay at home. What they're describing here is Nebuchadnezzar's heart. He was a, a drinker. And when he was drinking, he began to be arrogant and, and, and something about how the wine and the, the alcohol stirred him into foolish decisions. And he would go on conquest as he drank and take on nations and um, so his greed, it says, is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he never has enough. 
which is an interesting statement on wealth. How much is enough? I'm going to be preaching a sermon on contentment here in a few weeks. How much is enough? I mean, if you ask the richest people that question, often you hear the response, well, just a little more. Just a little more. When was Nebuchadnezzar happy, satisfied, content? Never. More nations, more kingdoms, more power, more glory. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him, the Lord says, with scoffing and riddles. It's basically a scoffing song. They will say, woe to him. Here's the first woe. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those who awake who make you, uh, will make you tremble? They will be all a spoil for them because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you, O king. For the blood of man and the violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them, your glory will not last. It's basically what he's saying. Your glory will not last. This is short-lived. O king, you may have some days, you may have some moments where you think you're all that, but pride comes before a great fall. And the Lord, as we know from the book of James and and other passages in the New Testament, the Lord opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Your judgment is coming, the evil you have done will be done to you. It's an amazing thing. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you comes back to the king of Babylon. Second woe. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. Wow. For the stone will cry out from the wall, the beam from the woodwork. Respond. Think of this. Remember when Cain killed Abel and the blood of righteous Abel, as it were, cried out from the dirt to the Lord? The very stones of his fortress up on a hill are crying out, justice, justice must be served. The beams of his structure, of his house, are crying out to the Lord. It's not right. It's not okay. God knows. He sees all. And He will come. The third woe. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that peoples... uh, Is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and, and nations weary themselves for nothing? We go here a little bit to the book of Ecclesiastes, don't we? You're chasing the wind, Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, this is futile. It's meaningless. You heap up this kingdom. It's all going to burn. You have forfeited your life. Your labor is in vain. Your cities will burn. Your glory will not last. We know this call from Scripture. If the Lord does not build the house, those who build what? Labor in vain. If you labor to build, 
in pride and arrogance, you may get quite an accomplished kingdom with a lowercase k. But you have stored up so much wrath from the Father in that pride and arrogance and all that you have done, He will crush you because He is right and holy and just. King Nebuchadnezzar needs to hear this loud and clear. And then in contrast to the king's pride and his, his fleeting glory and his, his, his little kingdom that's going to be burned to the ground, this little verse shows up. I love this verse. This is also a quote from Isaiah, right? We know this is coming. This is a future fulfillment. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In its fullness, that will come in the new heavens and new earth that will be established unmistakably so when we, together with Christ, because of grace, through faith in Him, live with Him forever. No sin. No sinners to interrupt the perfect peace of His kingdom. The full knowledge of God. This is the fulfillment of the commission in Genesis 3. Or Genesis 2, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Well, with what? Fill the earth with the glory of the Lord, like the waters cover the sea. Hmm. The fourth woe, woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. Pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. For you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. Now just pause there. Think of what God's saying. He's talking about the cattle, the livestock that were harmed in the work of Nebuchadnezzar's invasions. All of the cattle and the livestock Their blood, too, cries justice must be served. Who's going to defend the cows? Do you remember how the book of Jonah finished? God also mentioned the livestock there. He is a God of creation. He has rights over His creation. He delights in His creation. Who are you to take out my cows? O king, I'm coming for you, and I will visit you with the blood of the violence those beasts that were terrified by you, the blood of man and the violence even to the earth, to the cities and all who dwell in them. Woe, he pronounces. It's coming your way. I was just thinking about how this combination goes together. Pride, power, perversion. Jeffrey Epstein, Epstein, however you say that, And all the madness that surrounds that, all that craziness, is a modern day example of this kind of thing. You get pride and arrogance. You get power and money. And then you think, well, I'll buy an island and do whatever I please. I will do whatever I please. Perversion. Violence. God sees it all. Not a single thing escapes His gaze. You might even escape the courts, but you will not escape the righteous judge who comes in wrath. 
The cup in the Lord's right hand is filled. What is this a reference to? I think it's a reference to his anger, his wrath. The cup is full, and guess what? He says to Nebuchadnezzar, you're going to drink it, every drop. He's coming around you, and he's going to pour it in, and you will taste of his fury. This is, this is serious stuff. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? Its metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. The fifth woe. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, but there is no breath at all in it. And then in contrast to this, one of my favorite verses in Habakkuk. But the earth, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Wow. These little trinkets and idols that they would make. The guy that makes the carved idol and then says, Awake, little carving, and I will bow and worship you and look to you to, to, to meet all my needs. I am going to bow before you, you little hand-carved trinket. What a joke this is. In contrast, oh, look at the Lord. The dishonor of idolatry is offensive to God. It's not just misplaced worship. It's not just, well, those poor people, they're just, you know, they just don't know, they're just distracted. No, it is offensive and sinful to bow, to give your heart in worship to anything but the one who deserves all of it, who is God. Who, by the way, is in absolute authority and is all-glorious. If we realized how glorious our God is, if we had a glimpse of Him seated in His holy temple, would anyone speak at all? We would fall on our faces like dead men in fear and trembling. We would say, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. The word there, interestingly enough, is let all the world shut up. Quit making racket. Quit babbling on. Quit running around. Focus and realize I am. And that's all that needs to be said. He is the God of glory. Our job, my friends, is simply to place our eyes upon Him. We don't have to say lots of words. We can come to Him and just be reminded of who He is. Who He is. Our response this morning. A couple different things here. Listen to these verses from Proverbs. I'm moving through Proverbs again in my devotion time came across this this week. There are six things that the Lord hates. He hates them. Seven that are an abomination to him. Think, friends, haughty eyes, number one. A lying tongue. Number three, hands that shed innocent blood. Four, a heart that devises wicked plans. Do we see the king of Babylon falling into a category here? Feet that make haste to run to evil. 
a false witness who breathe out, breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among the brothers. God hates that. He hates it. And he will come against it. So be remembering this, my friends. The wicked who walk in pride will meet with certain and eternal ruin, even if they prosper for a while. There is a strange comfort in this. It is a strangely comforting because it reminds us that we are not indeed responsible to do what only God can do. We are called to look to Him, to trust Him. He will deal with the wicked. He will deal with the violent, the sinner. He will deal in wrath and eternal ruin with them. We don't have to take that in our hands. That's one of the ways we find a place to forgive. It's one of the ways we find the freedom to release offense and forgives. We grant it because we say, I'm not the judge, but I know who he is. And he has all things in view. The second call is from Psalm 31. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong, Christian, be strong, and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. All you who wait for the Lord. So the righteous shall live by humble faith in the sovereign and righteous God. Wait for Him. Look to Him. Run to Him. Cry out to Him. Bring your how long, O Lords, as we said last week, to Him. This is the way we live. Every day in the midst of of his judgment. And thirdly, you can't preach through these verses and not at some way or another point to what Paul and the New Testament writers see in these verses. Look at this. Romans 1, 16 and 17. Paul says this, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who, who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then verse 17, listen now. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, here's the quote from Habakkuk 2 verse 4. The righteous shall live by faith. So what we see in shadow form, even in the Old Testament, dealing with nations and, and daily experience, the New Testament brings into clarity that it is indeed the very gospel that saves us that is by faith. It's by faith that we are saved. Sola fide. I love the connection here. The book of Hebrews brings this up again. Our only hope of rescue from God's righteous wrath against our sin is through the humble faith in Jesus. Because the reminder, as I said last week, is we are all of us sinners. Who in this room left to himself could ever say, I am righteous? None of us, not before the holy God. And so we must land here at the gospel. This is where it points us. The whole point of this in this passage with the bigger picture is that Jesus is the only hope. And how are we to embrace him? By faith. We're not saved by works. We can't dig ourselves out of this mess. Only trusting in Jesus can save us. So let's pray. Oh God, we come to you in that way. We are reminded that our salvation itself 
is by faith alone. It's apart from works so that none of us could boast. And we know that even that is the gift that comes from you, the very faith that saves us. You provide, and so we delight in you today, God. Our eyes are upon you. We need you. We pray that you would save, oh God, in this place, if anyone would be here who has yet to trust you, to put faith in you, Jesus, as Savior, I pray even now that you would stir them to that. Help them to just confess that to you. Lord, I believe, Jesus, be my Savior. Save me from my sins. Save me, O God, in Jesus' name. And Lord, we pray as we live this life, even in the midst of judgment, we pray that we would live by faith day by day. It's not just that we're saved by faith. It's that every day we live, we live by faith. We look to you, Lord. We can't handle all of these things on our own, but we know one who can And you are the one that we look to. Our eyes are on you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.